Well, in 2019, I got a request from someone at Bundy to visit their dying friend, and I'll call him Peter. Peter didn't attend our church, but I was told that he believed in Jesus. Apart from that, I didn't know much else about Peter except he was dying of cancer. He was having palliative care at home, and he didn't have much time. It was just a matter of days or weeks to live. And so Hannah, at that time, our Metro trainee, and I went to Peter's house to visit him. His wife uh, led us into their lovely home about 15 minutes from here. He had two school-aged children. Hannah and I went into Peter's bedroom where he was struggling to breathe. He could not say much to us. And so Hannah and I conducted a service as Peter lay in bed. Now, if you were Hannah or I in our place, what would you have said to Peter? He migrated here to give his family a better life. He worked hard to establish a home with hopes for the future. Now Peter had a matter of days to live. Helpless, needing a machine to help, keep helping him to breathe. Now if you were in Peter's place, what hope would you cling to in such a helpless state? What would matter to you most in those last days? One of the passages we read Peter that day was Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Let me pray for us. Uh, Gracious Father, we thank you for the hope that you give us through Christ. And I pray as we read these verses from Romans 5 that you would open open the eyes of our, our hearts to see the riches that we have in Jesus. Help me to speak your word faithfully, clearly, with love and boldness. Please cut us to our hearts tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to do something a little different tonight. I'm actually going to preach from the floor. I want to keep those who came back from camp awake. But I want to visually show you the dimensions of the gospel of Christ. So I'm going to preach from three different points in the auditorium, the past, the present, and the future. Not just in history, but in every believer's life, there's a past, a present, and a future in Christ. Okay, in your Bibles, Romans 5 is the context for our talk tonight, okay? And the context of this is Paul speaks about a hope that God pours into the hearts of believers, a hope that will not disappoint, and the following verses that we're going to look at tonight are going to unpack that statement. So three points I want to make from tonight. You are helpless but loved in the past. Christ died for you in the present, and in the future he will save your life. Okay, first point in the past, you are helpless but loved. Now in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, he doesn't pull any punches in describing the condition of humanity. Back in chapter 3, this is what he says about us because of our sin. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are alike under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all alike have become worthless. And here's the verdict in verse 23. On humanity, sinful humanity, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
It's a pretty damning summary. But here in Romans 5, Paul doesn't pull any punches. Look at how he describes us. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. It's not very flattering, is it? But it's true. Based on our own efforts, our own morality, our thoughts, our actions and attitudes, you and I are nothing better, as Paul says, than helpless, godless enemies of the living God. Now, that is a great leveling truth, isn't it? That I have no right to say I'm better than you, and you have no right to say you're better than me. There's there's actually no grounds for racism, ageism, classism, whatever-ism, because in God's eyes, we're all alike, helpless, godless sinners. Paul's point is that the helpless need help. Uh, Paul was one of the leading Pharisees of his time. In other words, he was an expert on the Old Testament law. A highly moral person, he once thought of himself. But he came to realize that he was utterly helpless. In fact, he described himself as the chief of all sinners in the Bible. And helpless sinners cannot help themselves. They need help from the outside. Enter God. Now, here then is one of the most stunning verses in the Bible, a verse that has had great impact on my own life, Romans 5, verse 8. But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we're going to unpack Christ's death a little later, but I want you to notice what is it that drove God to send Christ to die for us? His love. But notice, at what point in time does God show that love to us? While we were good, while we were still sinners here in the past, while we were ungodly, while we were unlovely. You know, all of us are good at loving the lovely, aren't we? We're good at loving those who can return our love. On the other hand, God loves sinners. God loves the ungodly. God loves His enemies. Think of Jesus. Beaten, mocked, spit on, struck in his face, a crown of thorns, brutally shoved on his head, and then crucified with giant nails through his wrist, through his feet. And as the soldiers who tortured him are gambling to see who gets his clothes, he utters the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is incredible love, isn't it? A love without comparison. You cannot do anything to deserve this kind of love. Because what you did was you actually sinned against the God who made you, and you know what? He still loves you. God's love has nothing to do with you. That's a bit offensive, isn't it? We're a bit offended by that. There must be something in me that deserves God's love. And the answer is no. And you know, that is the most secure kind of love there is, right? Because God doesn't love me because I'm beautiful or I'm talented or I'm good, I'm moral. God loves me because he decided to love me. 
love that depends on the object of love, that is me, that is insecure love, isn't it? Because if I do something wrong, then I don't have that love anymore. But God's love depends on the subject, which is God. And that is the most secure love there is. He loved us because he loved us. In verse 6, God sent Christ to die at the right time. You notice that phrase? When was the right time? When we were at our most helpless. I don't know about you, but the right time for me is not when I'm helpless. It's when I feel powerful, when I feel in control, I'm winning at life, winning at my relationships. But that is not the right time from God's perspective. He wants to meet us in our helplessness, in our failure, when we have no other option than to cry out for help. Think of the prodigal son in Luke 15 who squandered his father's wealth and he made a complete mess of his life, realizing that the father he had treated so terribly was the father who still loved him. And as he's sitting there, jealous of the pig food, he decides instead to return home to his loving father. You are helpless, but loved. So let me ask you the question, do you know how helpless you really are and how loved you really are? Because you need to understand both those things. Tim Keller once said, the gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. You know, you go through life thinking that if you're better, people will love you more. And so you put this energy into pretending you're better than you really are, but with God, there's no more need to pretend. He loves helpless and hopeless sinners. He loves you, and all you can do is receive and rely on that love. Yeah, he loved you in the past while you were still a sinner. But we move on from the past into the present. Here's our second point. Christ died for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. That's what God's love looks like in practice. 1 John 1.4, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now that's remarkably similar to Romans 5 verse 8 tonight, God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. And God says, here it is. Here it is. This is the fullest display of God's love. Love in no uncertain terms. It's all about the death of Christ. Look at verse 6. At the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You think Paul's trying to make a point? The death of Jesus is vitally important to all of us because it's important to God. God's love on full display. 
Notice verse 7. Very rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, someone might even dare to die. Now, what is going on in this verse? Now, I think Paul's making a comparison of human love and his own love. Now, what kind of person would human love sacrifice itself for? Now, there's some debate between the commentators about exactly what a just person is and a good person, but when I think about this comparison, I think about a parable that Jesus once told, the parable of the the Good Samaritan. You might be familiar with it in Luke 10. A man is beaten, he's stripped, he's robbed, and he's just lying there, and then a priest and a Levite walk past, and they do nothing for this man, and they're both considered law keepers. Moral, legalistically righteous people in the eyes of their society. That's why Jesus is using them in this parable. But for all their just legalistic righteousness, they fail to show basic compassion to this man in need. Now, they might have done the the righteous thing in the temple in front of others, but they did not do that in front of God when this man needed mercy. But the Samaritan, on the other hand, Jesus says, is the good person. Him that the Jews hated was the one who helped this man. Now, when I think about this parable, I would die for someone like the Samaritan. If I had to take a grenade for him, I would do it, because I know that he would probably take a grenade for me. On the other hand, I would not take a grenade for the just Levite and priest. Because I I don't think they do that for me. All show, no go. But here's the thing, right? Jesus, according to verse 8, he would take a grenade for everyone in the parable, including the the guys who robbed the man. Uh, The movie Hacksaw Ridge is based on the true story of Desmond Doss, who was raised a devout Seventh-day Adventist. And He joined the army in 1942, but as a conscientious objector, that is, he did not believe in violence. He refused to carry a weapon because of his beliefs. Now, for that, he was bullied. He was threatened in boot camp. He was called a coward. Fellow recruits threw shoes at him when he prayed. Commanding officers tried to transfer him out of the unit because they thought he would be a liability because he wouldn't shoot anyone and defend his friends. But still... Doss remained true to his convictions. Instead, he became a medic in his unit. And in April 1945, on a battle on the Japanese island of Okinawa, Doss's battalion was tasked with taking a a ridge that they called Hacksaw Ridge, about a jagged cliff about 100 meters above the U.S. Army's camp. But up on that ridge, thousands of heavily armed Japanese soldiers awaited them. And after a week of intense fighting, the U.S. soldiers were close to taking the ridge, but the artillery fire was so heavy that the soldiers who weren't wounded retreated back down the cliff to the camp, except Desmond Doss. And so for 12 hours on Hacksaw Ridge, by himself, he rescued 75 wounded soldiers and lowered them down the ridge on a rope, one by one. And each time he saved a man, he prayed, Dear God, let me get just one more man. He even lowered his enemies 
Japanese soldiers. He even risked his life to save those who bullied him and hated him and tried to get him out of his unit. A few weeks later, kicking a grenade away from his fellow soldiers, Doss was badly injured in his leg, and he told the medics to take another man who was more injured than himself. And hours later, a sniper shot him in the arm, and he crawled to the aid station by himself, and eventually he was flown to America, where he received the Congressional Medal of Honor from President Truman, the only soldier to do so without firing a single bullet. Captain Jack Glover, who tried to get Doss transferred out of his unit, eventually said this, he was one of the bravest persons alive, and then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing. It's easy to die for those you love, but to love your enemies and to be willing to die for them and then make them your friends is so rare, isn't it, that they make Oscar-nominated movies about it. And who is behind that kind of love for Desmond Dodds? God. Now, if there's something compelling about the love that Desmond Doss shows for those who hated him, then you get something about the compelling love of the cross. Now, what did Christ's death achieve for us? Justified and reconciled. Here are the two picture words that Paul draws our attention to. Because of the cross, believers are justified with God and they're reconciled to God right now, right now in the present. Believers have those two benefits. Now, they're not the same thing, but they paint a rich picture of what it means to have relationship with God. In verse 9, Paul says, since we have been justified by his blood. Now, this word is the language of the law courts. Sin demands a punishment, and, and God is a just God, and he demands a punishment for sin. But instead of us receiving that punishment, God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. That's what Paul, uh, John said. A sacrifice that turns away God's just anger towards our sin and towards Christ on the cross. Jesus pays the price. He satisfies God's wrath. And so from a legal point of view, we can now stand before God justified, or as Clint said last week, just as if I'd never sinned. But if that wasn't good enough, God is not just the judge who will acquit us God is the Father who reconciles us. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Now, this is the language of relationship restored, peaceful relationship. Now, think of that embrace between the father in Luke 15 and the prodigal son. The rebellious son who returns home he is not treated as a slave, as a servant. He is embraced, reconciled to his father. Now, Romans 8, in a few chapters, Paul is going to say that God treats us as part of his family. He adopts us into his family. By his spirit, he gives us the privilege to call him Abba, Daddy, Father. So believer, right now, in the present, you stand before God, justified and reconciled, and that is what the cross has achieved for you. 
Now, as a bonus for you tonight, we're going to do some etymology. Do you, you know what that is? That is the study of the origin of words. Okay? Here's the word. Crucial. Extremely important, essential, critical in the success or the failure of something. For example, it is crucial that you keep breathing. Etymology of the word crucial. Okay. Seems to have come from an 18th century French word crucial has sort of a background in medical ligaments in the knee that cross over each other. There's a clue. The origin, though, of that French word comes from the Latin word crux. What does the word crux mean? Cross. Have you heard that expression, the crux of the matter? The crucial, critical element of the matter. The cross of the matter. Where we get the word crucial. From the cross. Latin, French, English, all say that the cross is crucial. The essential, the critical point of failure or success in your life is the cross. Let me ask you to finish this question. The most crucial thing in my life is what is it? Relationship? Or the desire to have a relationship? A job? Because the job you have right now you hate. A family member that you cannot tolerate right now. Worry about finances. Worry about your health. Whatever it is, according to the Bible, the most crucial thing in your life is the cross. It's how you move from being a helpless enemy of God to being a justified, reconciled child of God. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus has already done more for you than you could possibly ask or imagine. And because of the cross, like the love of Desmond Doss for those who hated him, Jesus will stick with you right to the end. Now, I want you to do this, right? In your head, I want you to think about the worst thing that you're going through right now. And then at the end of it, I want you to say, but Christ died for me. Try it, okay? Here we go. I feel so alone right now. Christ died for me. I hate my job right now, but Christ died for me. I, I can't deal with my, my father right now, but Christ died for me. I'm so worried I'll never buy a house, but Christ died for me. My health is so terrible right now, but Christ died for me. I guarantee you that if you believe that the cross is the most crucial thing in your life, everything else takes on a new and better perspective in life. But if you feel you're someone here, stuck here, helpless, hopeless, in Romans 5, in the early verses, he talks about faith. That's how you move from here to here, by faith, grace, through faith. 
by trusting in the death of Jesus. I feel so ashamed, I feel so guilty because of my sin, but Christ died for me. And so I am justified, I am reconciled. You're helpless, but you're loved. Christ died for you. And here's the third point, he will save your life. Look at verse 6. We're moving from the present, we're moving now to the future, and remember the context of Romans 5. Uh, Verse 5, it's about hope. Paul's going to explain how hope will not disappoint us. Now, firmly in Paul's mind is a day that is coming, and that is the day of God's wrath, his judgment towards sin. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Now, God's wrath, that is his just anger towards sin. It's not, it's not uncontrolled rage, but it is measured, it's personal. It's his response towards our sinful hearts. Now, when you read the New Testament, God's wrath on that day, it's terrifying. Okay, look at Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You get what John is saying there. Everyone will face God's judgment. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're powerful or you're powerless. On the day of God's wrath, everyone must give account to God and to his son, Jesus the Lamb. But if you're found wanting on the day of judgment, you would rather be crushed by rocks. That's full on, isn't it? Now, Paul is saying, though, in Romans 5, this day is still to come. And yet Paul is saying to believers right now, hope will not disappoint you. You know, this part, this is where we live right now, we're we're often uncertain here, aren't we? A bit worried about the future. And Paul is saying, hope will not disappoint you. Why? Look at verse 9 and 10. There are two how much mores. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Now here's Paul's logic when thinking about the future. Look at what God has done for you in the present and the past. You know, if God loved you all the way back over here in the past, while you're still a sinner, Enough to send Jesus to die for you in the present to justify and reconcile you through the cross of Christ. Then how much more is he going to save you from the coming wrath in the future? Do you think God's going to love you any less? Do you think God is not going to finish what he started? Do you think that God is not capable of getting you to heaven? And the resurrection is the proof of that. We will be saved by his life, verse 10. 
Jesus' death justifies and reconciles you. Jesus' resurrection will save you from God's wrath. And even as we speak right now, the living Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is interceding for us, between us and God. And so for all who call on Jesus by faith, who trust in Jesus, they already know the verdict on that day of wrath. Saved. Seated already in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Now that brings us to our final verse, verse 11. The only application in these verses, and not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And that echoes verse 6, where Paul has said, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, when you see all that Christ has done for you in the past, in the present, and in the future, he loved you when you were a helpless sinner. He died in your place to justify and reconcile you, given you confident hope that he will save you from the wrath of God. How could you make your life about you? How could you boast about yourself? How could you ever think that the most important person in the world is anyone other than Jesus? All about him. So let me ask you the final question tonight. Is Christ your boast? Is he your boast? This year as a pastor, I've seen in this church and in people I know, life-changing accidents, sudden unexpected death, cancer diagnosis, betrayal and breakdown in marriage, hopes dashed and disappointed. And you know, none of us are immune to those things. We think we are. We think we're in control, but we're not. All the things that you focus on, that you work for, that you dream of, could come crashing down in an instant. Don't boast in the things that are like shifting sand, like dust through your fingers. One day, all of us, you and I, will be like Peter, the man at the start of my talk. We'll face death, we'll face God, and what will be your boast then? What will be your hope in the final hours of your life? A few months ago, after the death of his friend Tim Keller, uh, John Piper posted a video of his last contact with his fellow pastor and friend, Tim Keller. And he said this to fellow pastors, but he also said this to young people. He said, be more thrilled that you are saved than you are successful. Take more delight in the Savior than in his service. That's what I think Tim Keller would want me to say, John Piper said. I need that reminder. You need that reminder. Tim Keller's son, Michael, said that his father, Tim, prayed this in his final hours. I'm so thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. 
You are helpless but loved. Christ died for you. And he will save you. That is hope for the hopeless. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, we thank you that you've poured out your hope into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for loving us while we were still sinners in the past. Thank you for such love that loves enemies and makes friends out of them. Thank you for love that sends Jesus to die. Thank you for the assurance that we will be saved from the coming wrath. Gracious Father, together with all the saints, help us to grasp how wide and deep and long and high is the love of Christ. Father, help us to proclaim this message to people without hope. Help us to share what we have to people who are hungry for hope. We pray in Jesus' name.